It says this in Matthew 20, verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said, they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, it is different. I uh, hope you guys got some blood flow in there. Everybody awake? Feeling good? Okay, good. Great. I can tell by that response you guys are wide awake. <clears throat> good. Good, good, good. Yeah, so we're in Matthew 20, continuing our series questions. Today is going to look a little different. Um, I'll only be up here for a little bit. I want to kind of drop us into this story and, and set it up for us, and then we're going to, together as a church, uh, kind of think through that question of what do we want Jesus to do for us. And so uh, as, you, as you're finding Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34, uh, I want to I just put us in a, in, a, in a different headspace that kind of gets us thinking through the idea of the sermon today. All right, so the year was 1937, and there was a man who had just come into power in Germany, infamously known as Hitler, Adolf Hitler. He, he had been in power for a few years, and by this point, everybody kind of knew what his plans were. His racist and fascist uh, plans and schemes had come to light, and there was tension across the globe. Everybody, the, the world really was on the brink of war. And, and every, everybody felt it. And, and while his kingdom that he was building was one of, of violence and anger and hatred, uh, in that same country there was, there was another kingdom uh, that was taking root, uh, really a mustard seed principle, by a guy named uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. All right, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I see some nods, you're familiar with the name. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian like a brilliant man, a genius, mentored and studied under uh, some of the most influential theologians, uh, whether we know their names or not, that, that we uh, in Western culture, Christianity, owe a lot to. Uh, but, but Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he had a different vision uh, for what was uh, going on in the, in the state of Germany and especially in the state church. And so he, he moved out uh, close to the border of Germany and Poland, and he started a seminary. And it was really small. There was an estate that was gifted to him. It was like almost monastic, like, like morning prayer, afternoon prayer, scripture, memory, meditation, sermons every day, confession every day, and things like that. And while all this was going on in the, in, the, in the background, you have, like I said, Hitler rising to power, making his plans known, and then you have this thing going on. And a lot of uh, Bonhoeffer's friends and mentors like, thought that he was kind of going off the deep end a little bit. Uh, Karl Barth, one of his mentors, probably the most um, well-known, influential theologian since St. Augustine, uh, said himself that he thought that Diedrich Bonhoeffer was given into spiritualism. And was like actually going like a little farther than maybe he should. And so one of his friends who he had gone to school with and grown up with decided to go out visit Bonhoeffer and make sure like everything was fine. Like kind of, you know, that like friend checkup kind of deal. Um, we've either had that happen to us or we've done it to somebody else at some point. So he goes out and, and as they're talking and he's kind of asking some pr- 
pressing questions, it get Diedrich realizes that that he thinks that he's kind of crazy. Like like that that what was going on at Finkenwald was just a little too serious. They were taking what they believed. There there wasn't enough freedoms. There wasn't all these things. So what he did, he got him he got his buddy, and they went to this body of water. It was a sound, and they get in a rowboat, and he rows them across the body of water, and they get to basically of Germany and Poland. And they go to the top of this hill. They climb up the top of this hill. They get to the top and they look down and there's a, a, a Nazi training camp. So there, there are soldiers marching and there are airplanes going off and, and landing. And there was the, the, the distant sound of gunfire. And, and this is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer looked to his buddy and he said this quote. He said, you have to be stronger than these tormentors you find everywhere today. You have to be stronger than these tormentors you find everywhere today. And so what he was basically saying is that he knew that, our, that discipleship to Jesus had not only, it didn't only have to be taken seriously, but it actually, that the formation into the image of Jesus was the only way a believer could make it out of the formation machine that was becoming Nazi Germany. He knew that the vision of discipleship had to be more compelling than the vision of the culture they lived in. And so today, like we don't live in Nazi Germany, right? We don't have a Hitler in office, no eye rolls, or looking at your neighbor jokingly, we don't. Uh, but we do live in a formation machine. If you, if you, if you don't believe me, uh, just think like we live in a society that teaches us how to value things that really go directly against the way of Jesus. No, we're constantly saturating our minds with pictures of how much better our lives would be if we had a different car, a different home, a different spouse, or a different job. We would rather Google answers to hard questions than ask a mentor figure and have an awkward conversation that leads to a lifelong friendship. It's just easier to Google those things. The vision that we have for our lives is usually... And this is generalized here, but if we're honest, in America, the vision for our lives that we have is usually fueled by comfort, ease, self-indulgence, and following Jesus comes in a close second as long as it doesn't interfere with our career. Because, come on, like, we got to make money, right? Um, But these, so if we take the quote of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, we all come in contact with tormentors today. It's those things that are trying to convince us that following Jesus isn't worth it or that Jesus isn't enough or that Jesus can wait until we go off to college and sow our wild oats and then later we'll get serious about what we believe or whatever it is. We all have these tormentors, these things that are pulling us away from Jesus. And let me just kind of give the caveat, like I'm no exception to these things. Anna and I have like a monthly argument where I'm trying to convince her to sell our perfectly good Subaru Outback and and buy a cooler car, specifically a, a pickup truck. Okay, like if we're just all things being equal, let me just throw that out there. It's probably the most contentious argument we have on a monthly basis, and it's my fault. You're an angel. Um, but I want to, but I want to convince us, and I, and I want us to kind of think through this as a church this morning. Um, the thing is, like, it's not a question on if we're being formed. The question is what we're being formed into. What is it that we are being formed into? Because it's easy to say, like, hey, hey, Matt, that sounds good, but, like, 
but like, I, man, I, I'm not dealing with that, you know, or whatever. Like, hey, I'm past that in my life. I'm past that point, whatever it is. I mean, like, let's just take, for example, if you don't believe that we live in a formation machine, um, Barna Research Group, it's a Christian research group led by David Kinneman and, and some, other, some other really smart people. Um, they, they uh, a few years ago, did a study that took place uh, with people between the ages of 15 and 23 over the course of seven or eight years. And uh, they, they uh, found that the average 15 to 23-year-old consumes 2,767 hours of screen time a year. That's digital media in a handheld form. All right, 2,767 hours. And out of those, the average churchgoer, so there were different people that, that were in this group, the average churchgoer, out of those 2,700 hours, about 290 of them were spiritual content. So that's roughly 10% in that age group were spiritual. So, so if you don't think that you're, like, if we're in a formation machine, just realize, like, our phones literally have algorithms that tell us what to buy, who to hang out with, how we should think, what TV shows we could watch, and they're controlled by that. Like, there's, like, documentaries on Netflix that are shocking. I've got a friend that works in a huge digital media firm in Atlanta, and every time we talk, he's like, hey, have you deleted Facebook yet? <laughs> and this is not like a Facebook, this is not like slamming Facebook. This is just like the reality that we live in. It's the reality that we, we live in. The question that we find Jesus asking today in this, in this story, it makes us come to terms with those tormentors. It makes us name them and because it forces us to realize that we need an encounter with Jesus. We need an encounter with Jesus. I mean, I mean, look, these two men today, they actually can relate to us more than we think. Because these men, the two blind men, they had been formed. They had grown up in a society. They had grown up in families. They had grown up in culture. They had grown up in schools or, or the synagogue, whatever, that had formed them into the people that they were. And they knew that their only hope that they had was to receive the mercy of the Messiah. So they grew up being formed, they knew uh, that what Isaiah had said like five, almost 500 years earlier, that when the Messiah came, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf would be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So they knew that they had to position themselves to have an encounter with Jesus. They, they, they knew it was, Jerusalem, it was the time of the Passover. They knew that Jesus just like every year he did because he was a faithful Jew, would be going into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and they positioned themselves to come in contact with the King of David. I mean, Jesus, they knew, had to be the guy. They were formed to think that, but they were also formed by their culture, by their society, because they knew their place. Their, their formation was done by force because remember the story when, when Andrew read it, they, they yelled, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, but the crowd rebuked them. The crowd was saying, no, you can't, you can't call out to him like that. Like, you're not good enough, you're not worthy enough, you, you need to find your place. So they were being formed by force. And maybe they weren't being told, you know, to sit in the back because of their physical ailments was something they had grown used to. And the, the rebukes of the crowd had maybe calloused them. But they knew that they had to come in contact with Jesus. Their tormentors, the things that were keeping them from coming in contact with Jesus, maybe different from ours, maybe different from yours sitting there. But these men, they knew those things. They had to name them because they knew they needed a change 
and they needed an encounter with Jesus. And so I want to just kind of open it up today and, and get you to think. I've been having to think all week and literally write out and name the things. What are those things, those tormentors, like Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, that are keeping us from an encounter with Jesus? Like maybe it's just like not setting an alarm in the morning. Like what would it do to change out? This is something me personally this week that I've been thinking through. Like what would it mean to change out my TV time in the evening with just prayer? You know? I mean, it was funny because it was easy to like watch that cheesy commercial of Mark Zuckerberg talking about the metaverse. And it was like funny to kind of make fun of that. But I was like, man, I escape to different realities all the time. You know? And, and, and so anyways, that's a, that's a, that wasn't in my notes. I'll keep going. See, the, the blind men, they knew what the prophet Joel had said. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's what they did. They cried out. They positioned themselves in a situation where they could encounter Jesus. They took God at his word, that he hears the cries of the oppressed, and that he came. They knew they had to believe in a kingdom that was better than the one that they knew personally because it was their only way to be whole and for the wrong things to be made right. Their Jewish backgrounds would have them believe that there would eventually be one to come and reverse the curse, and they heard stories growing up that were constant reminders that there would eventually be one who is the better Moses, the king of Israel whose heart wasn't given to idols and whose hands would not be dirty from, uh, from bloodshed, the faithful son of David who would not only rebuild the temple but would sit on the heavenly throne and his people would become his temple. They knew that his kingdom would be one of peace and mercy. So they cried out in the most powerful words they knew possible. Lord, the Greek word kurios, the one that became the anthem of the believers after they knew Jesus had risen from the dead, conquering the reign of sin and death. Lord, have mercy on us, the son of David, the rightful king to come sit on the holy hill of the Lord in Jerusalem. They prayed to the Messiah that they couldn't see, and he made himself the Messiah that they could see. So it's easy to like blow this off and say, Matt, this seems like you're reading a lot into it. These guys are blind, like I'm not. <laughs> you know, like, like this just seems like you're reading a lot into it. Um, but I, I, really, I really think it's important because the, the wording they used, the way they positioned themselves, where they were was strategic because they knew they needed an encounter with Jesus. And so I just wonder how many of us, like it struck me this week, how strategic am I in my encounters with Jesus. I mean, like, I'll set time, I'll set my calendar, I'll write things on my phone, I'll, remind, I'll get Siri to remind me of all kinds of things. I can't remember the last time I calendared time to pray and spend time with Jesus. I mean, like, like because, and the question becomes, what are those things, those formation things that have, take, I mean, like, anybody get those Sunday morning, like, updates of how much screen time you spent in the last week on average? brutal, right? Like right before I come up and preach for whatever, I don't know how to change it, but at 10 a.m. it it does it every morning. It's it's brutal to see how many hours a day I average. But the question, this isn't like some kind of legalistic, I'm not trying to guilt you into anything because that doesn't lead to anywhere. What I'm trying to just get us to do as a church, individuals following Jesus is, is to, to take care, get rid of those things, uh, Paul wrote in, in, in Romans 8, he said, if you live by the flesh, 
to live by the flesh is death, but to live by the spirit is life and peace. And so I'm just trying to get us, what are those things? What are the things of the flesh that are tormenting us and keeping us from our time with Jesus? So what I want to do just practically, okay? So the next few minutes are going to look a little different. Like Andrew said, you already noticed we didn't start with worship. Uh, Andrew opened us up, and um, my time's almost done. But I, I just want to lead us through kind of two practical th- steps as we're looking at, as, as followers of Jesus here at Fellowship Asheville, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to set ourselves up to have an encounter with Jesus the way these blind men do? Because if we can't name these tormentors, then we won't be able to answer the question when we do encounter Jesus where he says, what, what do you want for me? Or what do you want me to do for you? And so, personally, we're going to walk through that, and then um, Josh Montgomery, the chairman of our elders, is going to come up and lead us through as a church. Uh, what do we feel like we're asking Jesus to do for us? And so you probably see the documents on the, on, on the um, seat around you, or we're going to have a, an opportunity to get a digital version of that in a minute. But personally, I want, I want to actually, all of us, write out, Jesus, I need blank from you. And maybe you know. I mean, maybe right now you know what that thing is. Maybe you don't. Maybe you say, I, you know, I haven't, even thought about the la- I haven't even thought about approaching Jesus in a long time. I can't remember the last time I prayed. And if, he don't want to hear from me now. Let me just free you up. He does. Okay. Just consider it the fact that you're here hearing the word of God is proof that he wants to hear from you. Okay. So, so right out, Jesus, I need blank from you. Leave, you know, if you need to think through that, if you, we're not going to call it out loud or anything like that. But if you know what it is, um, and let me just, man, what, what torments you today? Thinking through that, that quote of Bonhoeffer, you have to be stronger than these tormentors you find everywhere today. And maybe it's addiction, anxiety, fear, control, hopelessness, feeling the need to fit in, afraid of being made fun of for what you believe, or maybe it's just laziness. I mean, maybe it's just as simple as, Waking up when your alarm goes off, which I'm guilty of most of the time. I don't remember who it was. I heard it called, every morning is the battle of the blankets. Are you going to get up? Are you going to win? Or are you going to sleep? And most of the time I sleep. Um, but with those in mind, what is it that you need from Jesus? And then, let me just, there's two questions I want to kind of leave us with personally before Josh comes up and leads us through this time. Um, when you're thinking through, okay, I, need it, I want an encounter with Jesus, what is it that I need from Jesus? Maybe for some of us, you just wrote, I need intimacy from Jesus. Or I need, you know, presence from Jesus. Maybe it's just that, that connection you're missing. Let me just kind of leave you with two questions personally, uh, just kind of to challenge and spark these, a time for you personally to, to have times of encounter with Jesus or whatever you grew up calling a quiet time, God time, you know, whatever, prayer time, Bible time, whatever that is, whatever you call that. Um, two questions just for us personally to think through is one, what do you need to add to your life to put yourself in a situation to encounter Jesus? And then the second question is what do you need to remove from your life to put yourself in a situation to encounter Jesus? And for, for some of us to add to your life, it might be an alarm clock, you know? It might be literally every day. I, I got convicted preparing the sermon this week, and now on my, on my calendar every morning at 5.30 and every night at 9 o'clock, it says Psalms, and I've been reading through the Psalms, praying them out loud to Jesus. I mean, literally, on, on my calendar, 
All right, that's new. I'm not like a, a saint or anything. I'm trying to figure this out too. But that was something I needed to add to my life was just a little discipline and structure. Some things I needed to remove. Um, it was just at night. Like, like I, could, I could binge till I fall asleep and I'd never fall asleep. I could watch TV all night long, you know? And I, I mean, whatever TV show's next on Netflix, cue it up. It's dangerous because Seinfeld just came on Netflix a few weeks ago which is just brutal to anybody trying to be disciplined and follow Jesus. I mean, because it's the greatest TV show of all time, you know, hands down. Um, and Josh is going to share about how that's a part of the way that we're going to follow Jesus is watching Seinfeld as a church. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. But, but seriously, what do you, those two questions, I just want to ask you that. What do you need to add to your life to put yourself in a situation to encounter Jesus? And what do you need to remove to put yourself in a situation to encounter Jesus? And if you need, and if you're sitting there today and you're like, hey man, I got a family, that sounds great, easier said than done. I got some helpful resources that Anna and I have used, some books that have been great. Um, Or you're like, hey, I just need like, I would love to create just kind of like, I had to create what's, what's been called for hundreds of years in the church, a rule of life, which is literally like different parts of spiritual disciplines broken down. Um, and I had to like type it out and hold myself accountable to that. And so maybe you need help just creating something like that. Man, I'd love to reach out to me. I'd love to help you think through that. Got books, resources that can, that can help do that. But um, I just want, just as, as an individual, let me ask you, uh, if Jesus sat down tonight and said, what do you want me to do for you? Would, we even, would you even be able to give him an answer? Uh, what, what would that time of encounter look like with Jesus? But so as a church, collectively, so renewal, revival, times with Jesus, encounters with Jesus, the, the group, the corporate, is sparked by the individual. So when the individuals experience renewal, it grows into corporate renewal and revival. And so we at Fellowship, uh, we're a group of people uh, who, who we say that we're a gospel-centered community that's creating environments where change is possible. Another way to say that in, in context of today is we're a gospel-centered community creating environments where encounters with Jesus is possible. And so um, just like these men, they were formed in a community of faith. Here at Fellowship Asheville, man, we have a vision for that. As a church, what are we asking Jesus to do? If Jesus asked us collectively as a church, and our elders and Pastor Fred have been praying through that for years, so we have this present future document, and Josh is going to come up and lead us uh, through, through that document. Yeah, I was trying to think of where to put Seinfeld. I have no idea. Um, yeah, so like Matt said, um, you know, my goal today is to try to figure out, um, the goal is to kind of tie in the message, you know, this question, and share with you guys how we as a church, how we collectively as Fellowship Asheville have answered that question that Jesus has asked, you know, what would you have me do for you? And so what I'm going to do, I know... Most people don't like just to be read to, but uh, I do think that there's something really powerful about speaking things like this. And so, um, as Matt said, there's copies of this uh, kind of scattered throughout. So if you want to read along with me, but I'm, I'm just going to read through this. I'll make a few little comments, and then there's a few little things I want to share at the end. Um, and I don't think we're not going to have anything up on the screen. So um, if you want to follow along, just grab one of these sheets. So. You know, as Matt was saying, as, as in answering that question for us at Fellowship, um, it kind of starts with a, a dream, a dream of, you know, this is who we are today. It's, it's kind of that statement that says, when we grow up, this is who we want to be. And so our dream at Fellowship Asheville says that we are a place of hope, healing, 
and inspiration for the Oakley community, the city of Asheville, Western North Carolina, and for those who join us from wherever they may live. And our mission statement is real simple, but it's very powerful that we are disciple-making disciples. And our vision in this is we are a gospel-centered community creating environments where change is possible. And so some of you have probably heard that before. It's on our website. But the real meat of this that I want to share with you today is if our dream becomes a reality and our, our mission is accomplished and our vision is obtained, it's these following things that I want to kind of hone in on because this is what it looks like. This is what the church looks like. This is what fellowship looks like. Um, these are kind of the outcomes of that. So I'm just going to read through them. The first one says, the gospel is the filter we run every decision through. Our belief in and proclamation of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection define how we see ourselves and how we see the world around us. Our people talk about Jesus because he is real to them. Our growth, our growth rate comprises 25% of new believers. We teach them how to live out their new faith by embracing their spiritual giftedness in service to others, understanding, and applying biblical truth and living a generous life. People attending fellowship actively engage in their own spiritual life and the spiritual life of others around them. They care for the well-being of others, and they can and they can tell stories of walking in greater faith and trust in Jesus year after year. Our people are actively engaged in the word more today than they were a year ago. Our people have a growing understanding of God's word. They pursue holiness in every area of their life. Secrets are disclosed in safe circles of care and accountability. And that's why, honestly, we put so much emphasis on our growth groups. Like where real life change happens is sitting in circles with people uh, who we're sharing our lives with, our stories with. It's where we really see growth in the church is when we're connecting to other people in the church. Going on, it says, our men are humble. They're wise, courageous, and compassionate leaders. Our women have a deep sense of acceptance in who God has made them to be. They understand the radiant beauty, gifting, worth, and calling. They walk with their head held high because of this, their secure identity in Jesus. Singles in our communities find a home with us where they're not labeled as second-class citizens of God's house, but they're welcome to lead with all their giftedness. Our fathers embrace their role with responsibility and enthusiasm. They love their wives and children sacrificially and older godly because an older godly man who knows them personally has modeled it to them. Our, our mothers nurture and train their children because we support and disciple them. Every new mother has an older and experienced woman who prays for, cares for, and supports her. And a lot of you may not know, Trish Lancaster leads a ministry here where she's meeting with young mothers who are just, you know, dealing with the challenges that come from raising small children and just the, the day to day, you know, I've watched my wife go through that. And so she's got a great ministry that she's, she's doing today where she's mentoring, she's supporting, she's encouraging young mothers. Our husbands and wives see themselves as one spiritual team. 
They pray together daily. They engage in their spiritual life together. They understand their roles and calling. They intentionally pursue a passionate relationship with each other, and they support each other through the trials of life. Our kids at Fellowship love Jesus. They are learning what a vibrant, life-giving relationship with God looks like. They love coming to and being the church. Our middle school and high school students know many adults by name. They know these adults love them because they serve with them. They pray with them and are mentored by them. One of my favorite things at Fellowship that I see is I love seeing these middle schoolers and high schoolers serving alongside the adults here. You'll see them in the tech booth. You'll see them on the porch. You'll see them greeting. You'll see, and that's one of my favorite things that I get to see here at Fellowship. Our people in the workforce see no differentiation between the sacred and the secular. They see their work as their ministry. Our cities are safer and more beautiful because of fellowship's influence and work. Our people make a difference in the neighborhoods where they live. Our facilities are used by like-minded organizations who serve the cities more than they are used by our members. Our buildings have a constant buzz of people coming and going through its doors. And right now, again, you may not know, there are six different organizations in this city that get to use this building on an ongoing basis. And that's part of our dream of having a place that our community can be connected to. Our church gives away more money than we keep. Our people are good stewards with our money. We do not have irresponsible debt. We assist those experiencing homelessness to live with dignity by being fed, finding jobs, and creating a sustainable life through our partnership with them. Children who have been abused and neglected would experience love and justice in their lives. Fewer children are going hungry. More children in the foster care system find safe homes, and more teenagers graduate high school because of our presence in the local schools and organization. Another thing, our church right now has been able to uh, create a, a really good relationship with just Oakley Elementary right across, the, right across the street. And right now, there are six different families that on an ongoing basis, your generosity is able to help through, whether it's food or care or love and support. Um, and a lot of people don't even realize that that's going on today. We work shoulder to shoulder with other churches in our city to represent the kingdom of God well. And just this couple weeks ago, if you participated in Serve Asheville, you may not have realized there were eight churches working alongside each other uh, for that day. And so, you know, as I, as I read through this list over this past week, um, I've just kind of cycled it through my brain over and over again. And I realized, you know, that there's a lot of things that we're doing as a church that we're doing a good job at, we're making a lot of strides in. But truthfully, I also realized that there, there's, a, there's things on this list that I think, man, we've got a little ways to go. You know, it's a, it's a good dream. It's a great place that we want to get to. And, and listen, we are, we are acutely aware of the fact that if Jesus is not in these things, if Jesus isn't a part of what we're doing through these things, then honestly, these are just words on a piece of paper. Like we recognize that Jesus has to be in this and that Jesus has to do this. But one of the beautiful things about God, one of the mysterious things about God is that even though we need him to accomplish his things, that he invites us to be a part of this, 
to me, it's almost comical because I feel like half the time I'm either in the way and I think, God, why don't you just do it yourself? Like, why would you even want me to be a part of this? But he does. Jesus doesn't need us. Jesus could do all of these things without us. But what he does is even better. He actually wants us. Jesus doesn't need us, but he wants us. And he wants us to be a part of what this great redemptive story that he has, this thing where he's trying to reach out to lost souls and save them and show his love to people. And he has invited us into this. And so I'll kind of wrap it up with this. Knowing that this is our dream as a church, like this is, this is who we want to be when we grow up. This is, these are the things that we feel like as a church would answer that question Jesus asked. What would you have me do for you? So knowing this and knowing the fact that Jesus in his kindness to us has invited us into this process. This is my ask of you this morning. My ask is for you to consider what would Jesus say if you reciprocated that question back to him? If you were to say, Lord, what would you have me do for you? How would you answer that question? Because if you look at the list, you know, one of the things that I, I hope as I was reading through it, one of the gifts that the Spirit brings us is we all have a passion for something. Like if you are a follower of Jesus, you may not know what it is, but I promise you it's there. You, you, we may not have been born with the desire to serve, but we were definitely reborn with the desire to serve. It's in us. And so I hope as you heard through this, there are so many opportunities for us and for you as a church to serve and to see this dream become a reality. If you have a passion for young children, talk to Carol, talk to Stephanie. If you love working with high schoolers, middle schoolers, talk to Andrew. He would love to talk with you about ways that you could get plugged into this. If you, and we can even get creative with it. If you have had this long desire to take God's love to some frozen part of the world, then talk to Amy. We'll put you on the greeting team and you can stand in the Arctic wind tunnel out here on Sunday morning. I mean, my point is there are plenty of ways for you to be involved in this. And the reality is this dream never becomes a reality if all of us don't work together to get there. The elders are woefully not enough. Our staff is not enough. To achieve this dream, it's going to take every one of us being willing to ask that question of Jesus. Lord, what do you want from me? What can I do from you? What would you have me do to be a part of this? And so Jared Buckner, who is also one of our elders, he's going to come up and he's going to lead us in a time of response, a time of prayer. Uh, and so hopefully my prayer is that, that you would ask the Lord to answer that question for you and where you're at today. So thank you.